So, so how about Kendall, Ange, how about we go ahead and get going? Y'all ready? Yeah, 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 I'm ready. Okay. All right. Um, uh, kia ora, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good day, wherever you are. Um, welcome to uh, our uh, June edition of Motivational Interviewing and Beyond. I'm uh, I'm Joel Porter. I'm one of the one of the panelists, one of the hosts of uh, of this um, roadshow, and um, I am in today. I'm in Nelson, New Zealand. I'm at the top of the South Island, and getting up early to come join this stimulating conversation where I'm hoping to learn a lot. Um, and what, well, I guess what to do is we'll just go do a round of introductions. And since we're all not looking at the same kind of arrangement on our screens, Kendall, I'll just pass it over to you and then we'll go up to Ange. Okay. All right. Thank you. So hi, everybody. Most of you know me. I'm Kendall Bond. I'm a behavioral psychologist and clinical director of the Center for Behavior Change in the UK. And as we've already discussed, I'm a little bit jet lagged. Uh, I've just been on holiday in the Caribbean, which was amazing, but we had a two day delay. And so I got in at about four o'clock this morning. So just a bit out of it, but really excited to have this conversation. It's just such, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the expertise that's on the panel and to hearing everybody else's opinions. So that's me. And then I'll pass over to Ange. Oh, thanks, Kendall. Hi, everyone. My name's Ange. I'm Angela Watkins. I'm providing support. I'll be monitoring the chat and providing any technical support you might have. Um, And I'm just really glad to be here, interested for the conversation ahead. Thank you. Um, And Steve, um, our our third host, fourth host, um, got called up to play cricket today. So he's out on the pitch. Um, So let's, let's wish him well and hope he doesn't get hurt. Um, but he, uh, he was quite excited about it. And, and at the same time, he really wanted to be here. But as Ann said, let fun be your guide, Steve. So, um, sending, sending Steve's apologies. Um, Catherine, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Absolutely, Joel. Hi, everybody. My name is Catherine Serio. I hail from Boise, Idaho, so pretty close to a couple other folks out here in the Pacific Northwest. I'm a clinical psychologist and a member of Mint, um, and I uh, worked in academia with University of Washington for many years, but then I uh, transitioned into industry. So most recently, I worked for a startup called Happify, um, now 12, and before that, I worked for a large integrated uh, delivery system, UPMC. So I'm always interested in how we can take behavioral science and motivational interviewing and scale them to serve more people. And what a better topic, that no better topic that I can think of than um, how AI impacts uh, that possibility. So thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. Uh, <clears throat> David, how about you? Well, let everybody know who you are. What yeah, are you? I, uh, great, great to be here, Dave Atkins. Um, I am, my current role is CEO and co-founder of Listen. Um, And Listen is uh, focused on developing AI-based software tools to help support training, supervision, and quality assurance of behavioral healthcare in general. But uh, Listen came out of university-based research. So I'm a clinical psychologist by background, uh, have been a professor in the psychiatry department at the University of Washington. And so what became Listen started about 15 years ago 
where we uh, began to look at how might we be able to apply advances in natural language processing, speech engineering, to the idea of automating uh, motivational interviewing fidelity. And so um, happy to talk more about that over the, the course of our time together and great, great to be here. Alex. Great to meet everyone or, or to be here today. I'm uh, based out of New Jersey. I'm a member of Mint since 2014, a counselor by trade, and I currently work for a tech forward mental health based company uh, whose sole purpose and goal is to alleviate and eliminate gaps and problems that really interfere with people's ability to access care and that also interfere with quality of care. And for those of y'all that are not in the motivational interviewing network of trainers. That's what MINT means uh, when people say that. And Michael. Hi, I'm Mike Tanana. I'm a chief technology officer and co-founder at Listen. Uh, previous to being at Listen, I was a research professor at the University of Utah. My background is in cognitive psychology and computer science. Um, and yeah, my day-to-day -day job is building some of the, the AI tools that we use for, for scaling, monitoring, and training of motivational interviewing and other psychotherapy um, practice. So it's really, really exciting to be here, and thanks for inviting us. Yeah, yeah. No, y'all are more than welcome. I'm, I'm already out of my depth. Um, and, and I, I don't, you know, I, Kendall, you were saying, you know, you You've been reflecting on your sense of AI and what that might be, and I guess I, I guess I have too. And I've read everything from it's the end of the world, you know, to um, it's the beginning of the new world. And so, what I'm really curious about, and, and Michael, how about you? We we kick it off with you, um, and we'll go around and let everybody else kind of add on to this. But, but what is artificial intelligence? That's a great question. I mean, artificial intelligence is a funny thing right now because it's such a buzzword, right? It's really entered uh, the, the national lexicon, at least here in the United States and probably anyone else who reads uh, the newspaper to the point where um, I think some of us who actually study these techniques tend to roll our eyes a little bit. But at its base, I think when I define artificial intelligence, I think of it as things that computers can do that we think of as uniquely human. Right? So, you know, there's a lot of things that we've grown up with computers doing, being able to add and subtract and sort of do these very rote things. But I think what's exciting right now is we're at the, the real cusp of computers really matching human performance on things that really we thought were the domain of humans. You know, some of the things that we do that I think people have traditionally thought of as uniquely human are, Things like identifying uh, empathy and generating statements that we consider to be empathic, maybe more empathic than statements if we asked humans to generate those things, right? Um, and so, you know, we're at this really exciting time where uh, humans are, you know, it used to be a question of will computers ever be able to do some of these tasks uh, the way that humans can, right? And now the question is more, what's the probability that a human will be able to tell the difference between the computer doing it and a human doing it? And so it's, uh, it's both an exciting time and a little bit of a scary time, but, um, you know, that's sort of the landscape when I think about artificial intelligence. And I'll, I'll head it over to, to someone else. All right. 
Catherine, do you do you want to share your thoughts and understanding of AI? Oh, you know, thank you, a delight. I, I really liked um, what Mike said. Um, you know, and I, I agree with it. And 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 I think um, what I'm very interested in, uh, especially there are lots of different types of artificial intelligence, right? Some of them. There's been a lot of buzz right now because of generative AI and specifically ChatGPT and the relationship between uh, Microsoft and OpenAI who funded um, their work. And then it was kind of the doors opened to any and all of us to um, go in and play with that part of, um, of artificial intelligence. Um, but it, it's been around in other forms for quite a while. Um, it's the generative piece I think that has sparked a lot of buzz. So. Um, I think what I'm particularly interested in rela uh, related to generative AI um, and what's happening there is that those models have been trained. The, you've probably heard the phrase, if you, if you haven't heard the phrase large language model or LLM, um, the models are trained on the universe of data largely pulled from the internet, right? That, you know, what humans think and say and um, do and know and uh, things we, you know, say that are not accurate, all of that are built into large language models. And so from the standpoint of, and, and, and through that, the uh, generative AI will give us answers to questions. So um, I think it's really interesting because the generative AI is set up to be an expert. And when I think about that, um, sitting alongside of motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing isn't about expertise. It's about inquiry. It's about getting to know the person. And so I've been thinking a lot about how do those two things come together in ways that might be scalable and impactful. Um, and I'm so glad that I'm in great company with others on this call who have also been thinking about it. Uh, but one of the things I'd like to learn more about on this call, and not to take us too deep into the weeds yet, Joel, but is you know, what are the language learning models or the existing models that might be better suited to be more person-centric and not just to try and mimic what, um, you know, an expert might say, because if we're just mimicking what the experts say, then we're um, just continuing the status quo um, and not really um, exploring how we can use inquiry as part of AI. So those are my thoughts. Alex, what, what, are, what are your thoughts at this point? and your experience with AI? I, that is, as, as much as we, we think that we'd like to know, it's probably very similar to the human brain and that we probably only know, or that we do know only a small percentage of what its potential and capabilities are. Um, I've had the opportunity, I've been really privileged to work with a, a lot of high level people and specifically in the space of doing quality assurance and, and coding work. And especially as large teams and small teams where we have the, the need to both demonstrate iterative reliability and fidelity to the coding system that was established as a part of the company. And, and so what was most fascinating to me was how with the right type of, off, right type of operational definitions, I can get artificial intelligence more reliably and with fidelity coding conversations than a group of people. And so when I first experienced that, and not just that, but its ability to read an entire transcript and pull out the statements that are just reflective of change talk, and then to also have the same thread produce 
you know, the change talk statements and then pair it with, you know, the practitioner statements before and then have it highlight specifically what language is a part of the practitioner statement or question evoked the change talk. You can do some really fascinating and intense high level things. And over the last few months, really the, the thing that's been on my mind, and this has continued to come up in, in our own conversations amongst uh, Mint members and in the Mint community, which is while access to artificial intelligence creates unbelievable opportunity and access, uh, what I've become acutely aware of, even as we did our own introductions, is how much more access we have here in the States than other parts of the, the world do. And even here in the United States, one of my biggest concerns isn't about artificial replacing jobs, because at some point that will be a, a part of what happens. As much as my concern is ensuring that marginalized communities and people of color have the same access to education and training as it relates to developing a skill set in artificial intelligence, you know, more so than anything else, because I see that being one of the biggest problems and concerns, you know, as it relates, you know, I've been doing this at a very high level uh, for the last six months. And, you know, it's given me an opportunity to not just develop a, a, a really healthy understanding of artificial intelligence, but also, it's many limitations. For example, you know, I hear some people using it to support helping to be more efficient in writing their clinical notes without taking into consideration that the technology of ChatGPT isn't HIPAA compliant. And so we don't necessarily know when we're using these things where that information is going to. And HIPAA compliance for the international group is, is a, a part of what ensures that in America that we're protecting uh, client information who we're serving in the context of treatment. And so there's just endless questions and things and also endless potential. Like the, the, the speed and, and efficiency and quality of uh, the quality assurance output, as well as its ability to package information to improve both the impact and efficiency of supervision. I, I don't know what else to say about that. Okay. Unreal. Well, as Catherine said, hopefully we'll get deeper and deeper in the weeds. All right, David, you yeah. want to round up the question of what is artificial? What's artificial intelligence? What, what? Carry the understanding a little bit further for us. Sure. Um, and uh, I think riffing off of what Catherine said earlier, um, AI isn't any one thing. It's it probably is maybe a good analogy is saying like a motorized vehicle. And so both a semi truck or a motorcycle or a, you know, golf cart are all motorized vehicles. There's a lot of different AI models. There's a lot of different AI applications. Um, you know, the, the core AI model that we have been using at Listen, though not exclusively, is really around how to predict um, uh, MI fidelity codes, other types of um, evidence-based practices, fidelity codes. And so, you know, similar to what uh, Alex was saying, um, it is, it can be uh, fairly awesome to be able to see how an AI-based system can analyze 
you know, not just a handful of sessions, but thousands. Um, we, as part of a new customer contract, uh, the Listen system analyzed about 20,000 MI sessions last Thursday and Friday, Mike, I think. Um, and so when you see something at that scale, it is, it is, it is eye popping. Um, and, and at the same time, it's worth considering how, how does this work or what is it doing? You know, does the, does the AI really understand something about empathy? Uh, this very human, um, trait, interpersonal quality. Uh, and, and I think the answer is pretty clearly no. Um, and, and the AI, this, the AI in this application, uh, what it's really good at is pattern matching. Um, and so we often talk about uh, AI or another another term that's thrown around quite a bit is machine learning. And so that, that captures this idea that these models are learning from data. And so a really, really critical piece of any AI development is what is that data that it's learning from? Um, and so that data needs to be really high quality. So in the case of predicting, you know, something like empathy or other things that we might find in a traditional MI fidelity coding system, we have to do that painstaking work of getting really high quality human-based behavioral coding data. And so the kind of dirty little secret hiding in plain sight is that to get to these amazing AI models, um, you know, we spend a ton of time doing old school traditional behavioral coding uh, because that is how we teach the machine. Um, so when the AI gets to see over and over again, here's a recording of a session and here's a, uh, expert human evaluation. This is a high empathy session. This is a low empathy session. The AI then begins to learn what is it about the words? What is it about vocal tone and prosody? What is it about the interaction back and forth between um, client and clinician that led someone to say this is high empathy and that's low empathy? And so after you see more and more and more examples of that, um, the AI can become quite good. And then what is also maybe uh, clear from that is that the, that data is really important um, and the qualities and characteristics of that training data are really, really important to where that model should be applied and maybe where it shouldn't be applied. Um, so if, you know, again, riffing on something that Alex brought up, if all of our training data is college educated Caucasian, you know, males, we are that model really might not generalize well to other uh, other areas of the world, other parts of the country, other socioeconomic groups within the U.S. Um, and so I think that is is one of the things that is really, really critical here. Um, and we we spend some time thinking about it at, at Listen. We are uh, later this summer, we'll be re releasing our first of what will be an annually updated report. Um, looking at potential bias in AI algorithms at, at listen across different ca categories of diversity, uh, focusing on race and ethnicity as the first one. So few few thoughts out of the gate. We're happy to talk about generative AI. We um, use that as well. Uh, Mike has been working with GPT type models for the last five or six years. So he can he can go as deep as we want to go there. Um, there's a couple things, right? So uh, like my head is filling up and I'm loving this. Um, 
there's a couple of things that stood out to me. Mike, you said something right at the beginning. You said it, it, it's um, kind of amazing and it's also scary. And I guess I was with the. I guess I was curious about what what you know somebody who's so immersed in this. What do you find scary about AI? So I think that there's a lot of us in the fields who have been thinking about these models and working with these models and really had our heads in these models for the last ten years, right? You know, these models have actually solved a problem uh, that computer scientists have been trying to solve for the last twenty years, which is that how do you leverage all of everything that you know about a language, English, Spanish, whatever language you're working with, and take that prior learned knowledge and apply it to a new problem, right? And that's what these transformer models, which is what GPT is, have really solved, right? They figured out how to leverage all of that unstructured human language and let us learn new problems much faster. So we can take stuff that we understand about the English language and learn how to code motivational interviewing fidelity very quickly with fewer examples than we could before. It's a major problem. It's a big thing that we've solved, right? Um, I, I think that the threat is that there's not a structure like the Food and Drug Administration. So in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration ensures that when you create a drug, that it's safe, that it's been tested, that there's public information that you share about it, right? There's nothing like that for artificial intelligence. Um, and so that there, I think there's a lot of people that have seen what ChatGPT can do and are like throwing it all at all these problems. ChatGPT is just sort of the raw material that people in the field use to train and fine tune and carefully calibrate to do something very careful, very measured, very accurate. And I think that there are people that are taking it um, and doing things that are irresponsible because, you know, you do one or two examples and it looks great, right? But there's no formal testing. There's no formal process. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> I hope, I hope Dave doesn't roll his eyes at me, but it's, uh, I sometimes compare it to like comparing an FDA approved drug that you take compared to like something that you buy in the street. And I think that's really the threat. And that's why we need structures where um, we're thinking about what are the rules to do this carefully, particularly in healthcare. You know, I think that we're seeing that um, the, the rules that Silicon Valley has applied to a lot of tech startups, they've tried to take those rules and apply them to healthcare. And it's been a disaster. I mean, Theranos is just one of many examples, right? moving quickly and breaking things um, is not what we want to do in healthcare because it's people's lives, right? And when you talk about mental health, um, these, this is a very careful, delicate situation. And so the way that we take artificial intelligence is this very careful, measured approach. You know, we publicly release performance data on how we do both generally uh, compared to humans and then with racial ethnic minority groups, right? And I think that that's the kind of data that people should be looking for, that there should be publicly available data, the same way that if you're going to be prescribed a drug, you can go on the internet, you can read peer-reviewed literature on it, you can see what the side effects are, you can see where it works well, and you can see how it doesn't work well. And I think that's um, the structure that we need to bring to this world. And it's going to happen. You know, governments will mandate this five, 10, 15 years from now, it's, it's a question of when, not if. Um, and, you know, I think from my perspective, 
based on what I've seen in the world, I think we need to bring those structures, particularly to healthcare, we need to bring those structures sooner so that um, people don't misuse some of these products. Mm. Okay, well, that, that, that was a huge help. And, and it is always interesting when, you know, like in, um, in the healthcare system, when they try to map on, you know, a business model sometimes to managing not only clinicians, but people with ha- with mental health needs for sure. And it, there's a lot of clash of what should work and what actually does work. Kendall, I'm just wondering what what you're thinking and what questions you have for the for the group. Um I have quite a lot of questions and I think what what Michael was just saying there is probably hit really closely to what my feelings are around the complexity of bringing accountability in and how that works within the political sphere because it's so political and it's so going to be like you say it's when governments bring in mandated legislation that it puts us in a position of while as clinicians and trainers and practitioners we want to be able to be open to change because we're asking our clients to be so we also want to be recognizing how much we are influencing and how much we're able to influence people of power of, of, of where these things start to dominate and create. And I feel like at the moment there's such a tension between the two. And I'm, I'm kind of, I, I can feel myself personally just really standing back from it and going, I, I don't know, I trust people like yourselves. Clearly <laughs> you have ethical integrity and responsibility. It's, it's other individuals that perhaps more are at the, the higher powers that I have, I'm more cynical about. And this is where my tension starts to lie. And I, I don't know if that sits with, I mean, Michael, you're saying it sits with you and, and Alex and David, you were talking about from yourselves as well around how this works within cultural differences. And Catherine, you unmuted. So I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts as well. Thank you. Oh, I've had a fair amount of existential distress about this topic. So um, I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts and reading on it. And uh, and there was a nice summary just to um, maybe continue on the, the good insights that um, Mike shared with us. Um, but someone talked about uh, there are three real threats of AI. Um, and the first is um, disinformation. And we're already experiencing that. And now that's going to get um, put out, you know, on steroids. Um, so that gives me existential distress uh, because how do we, you know, govern together? How do we um, evolve together if everyone has a different set of facts and or um, inaccurate facts that they're working off of? So that's going to um, continue and it's really going to um, explode with AI. The second is job loss. And so the, um, the piece that we've talked a lot about and, and some of my um, current consulting work in this area is about um, not being in an either or paradigm around jobs, um, being in a paradigm of the jobs will exist for the people who use AI to do the jobs better. Um, and so I think that's a very interesting uh, paradigm that we can all think about you know, doing good in the world. Like, how can we use these tools to help humans be better at their jobs? Um, and the third one, um, I'm currently ignoring, but I'm going to um, entertain it again when I hear some of these other really great minds on the call um, give me their take on it. But is this 
much more amorphous idea of, um, you know, end of the human race. So um, I work with uh, like Mike and Alex, I work with technologists and I say, you know, explain this to me. Like, can't we put, why haven't all the people that have built these uh, models, why haven't they put um, uh, fail safes in them? You know, like turn it off if it starts doing bad things. And um, as, as one of the technologists explained to me, and I'm really curious to hear from others, it's just not that simple because you could say, you could train the model to never hurt humans and to protect humans. And they could, you know, interpret that they, you know, the, the machine could interpret that as war is really hu um, hurting humans. And so therefore we need to, you know, intervene and uh, with war in some way that has a downstream effect that's, you know, negative and potentially catastrophic. So anyway, I just wanted to add that Kendall to the uh, conversation about like these three risks and um, hear what, what my colleagues have to say about them. And please tell us that the, the species isn't going away, but I don't know that any of us can crystal ball that one. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm curious what anybody else might be thinking. Who wants to jump oh. in, David? Oh. I'll, I'll pass on the, uh, the the great existential threat, but um, one one thread to pick up here is, um, you know, what is the role of AI in behavioral healthcare um, specifically, and is that um, supporting human clinicians in some way, or is that potentially replacing human clinicians in some way, and um, certainly. Uh, uh, Listen, at this point, has not taken any outside investor funding, but we do talk with investors with some regularity. And so in terms of what Silicon Valley might be saying about this, they are very interested in the idea of some kind of therapist bot um, because that would have a very nice return. Um, if you kind of move move therapists, human therapists out, um, software has a very high margin. Um, so Mike and I and our, our team at Listen is very, very committed to AI-based tools that support human therapists. Um, so there's, I think within this question is, is the question, is it ever possible? Can we ever imagine that AI might uh, be reach a level of maturity where you could have some kind of autonomous therapist bot? Um, and, uh, you know, Mike, I'll... I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think you can see, you can imagine that at some point we could get there. Um, we are not there now. Um, and there are a whole host of um, challenges, not necessarily with AI, but, you know, legal and ethical issues. You know, when the AI bot misses a kind of passive suicidality and then there's a successful suicide, like who is re legally responsible? For missing that so there i think there are some significant challenges but there are folks that are going to be pushing really hard um, in that direction um, and i think what what we see is that uh you know humans have a unique capacity to connect to um, other humans um, and so what what we certainly are focused on at listen is what are the ways that we can scaffold support um, kind of what we often will say is how, how can we provide tools that will maximize the human capacity, the human capital of therapists? Um, and so there's a variety of ways that that could happen from AI-based 
training tools to you know AI tools to support supervision and quality assurance um, so that that performance-based feedback, which is often really challenging to generate um, in behavioral health care, is something that we can teach the AI to do. Um, we've even done a little bit of work uh, looking at what internally we call our suggestion engine. Um, so this is a type of generative AI model that in a text-based um, treatment setting, uh, the AI can be monitoring the conversation and then suggest, here's a couple of things that you, the therapist, could say um, in the next uh, talk turn or exchange. Um, but uh, you know, those those are AI models that have been trained on behavioral health care data, evaluated by MI Fidelity tools. And so we know that what it will be suggesting is something that's in line with, you know, good basic MI skills and, you know, including empathic and collaborative uh, statements, you know, often relying on the ORS skills from MI. So so a, a couple of thoughts if we want to talk about the potential for AI AI bots or how, how AI, AI might get used uh, uh, more broadly with behavioral health care. I think we have a question from Sue Ekma. Sue, I'm going to hit the allow to talk and feel free to ask your question. Where'd you go? My hand went down. Never mind. We're done. Okay. We just like to include the audience into this. And we're getting some pretty interesting um conversation generated in in the chat um <clears throat> david there's one more thing i'd like to i'd like to hear more about that you said you said that you you know about, around empathy and you said you didn't see that ai is currently able to generate empathy was that was that what you said you said it cannot something around empathy and then it cannot manufacture empathy um well, I, I think I think maybe what I had said is, uh, you know, when we when we see these tools and they're able to um, either uh, correctly classify how empathic a provider was in a session or the ability um, to generate a highly empathic statement, um, you know, it's natural for us as humans to wonder, like, is the AI becoming human? Does it actually understand empathy? Um, and so I, I think, uh, Mike, why don't, why don't I let you feel that one? I, I, think, I, think, I think Dave was hypothesizing more on, is this underlying hardware doing what humans do when they're being empathic, which is to say they are really understanding uh, what that other human being is going through? And I think, I think he's hypothesizing the graphical processing unit isn't experiencing empathy the way that a human experiences empathy. But um, what the, you know, the actual computer hardware does very well is recognize empathy as well as humans can. It can generate statements that are perceived as by humans as being empathic. I think what he's saying is that like, there's something very different between what it is for another human. There's, there's no visceral experience. There's no visceral experience. If a chatbot is communicating in the context of an evidence-based language, there's no visceral experience that that chatbot is having as it's demonstrating compassion or attempting to express empathy. And with really great operational definitions in a really great model, 
because that's one of the challenging things about like an open MI based conversation and artificial intelligence is the transition points as you're navigating. I mean, it would be the same thing that a developing practitioner might say is when do I transition to focusing and what does that transition from focusing to evoking look like? And I'm just really overwhelmed by that. And so the challenge in artificial intelligence really doesn't become any more complicated than the human challenges as it relates to moving through a conversation. What I found as it relates to training or developing a chatbot to a space where it can perform as well as a person in, in the context of expressing empathy, again, it's not that it's do expressing empathy that well, as much as it's providing the opportunity for the receiver to experience feeling empathy. And so again, a lot of it is how you operationalize it. And so for me, the definition that I've had the most success with, and I guess share for those who are interested, is the experience of really feeling understood. And so a lot of it is how you operationalize it and how you coach it. And so it's less, and, and I think Dave was talking about it with his, his uh, language model system where you know you can make updates to it or just based on data that you're you're putting into it and how you're analyzing it and getting that information with the the model that michael's now using that the public has access to which has really opened the can on on this uh chat gpt you can really program it to function and listen the way you'd like it to and so i can train it to function you know, if I, especially if I'm being clear about a specific uh, like model or evidence-based intervention, but then I can say, take on the character of, I don't know, Cindy Lou, the main character from the book Sweet Valley High, which is a book about a, a high school character. And my point is, is that the personality, right? It's not the personality, but the 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 language model can take on it's understanding of the personality type and characteristics of the character from that book because it has access to that information and is designed to interpret things based on it's how we're prompting it. And so um, there's just a lot of really interesting things that, that you can do with it. Uh, and, and for me, um, and this is where I guess it, it can get, get a little bit scary. And I'm certainly not at a space like Catherine where I'm having existential distress yet, at least not about that, um, is really thinking about like most people stop using it or stop, you know, really getting into it when they say this is its limitation. And, and the question that I'd like everyone to really ask themselves is when you find yourself in a space where you're asking yourself, oh, I don't think I could do anything else with this, or this is as far as it could go. I don't think there's anything else to do with this. To really ask yourself what it is about your experience of AI that's creating that for you. Um, just to start to, to create some of that inner dialogue that might be really helpful to move over, over time to a space where you can develop a healthier relationship or start to do that with it. Uh, because it is, it will be something that influences and impacts pretty much most moving parts of uh, the industry in which we're working, the helping or healthcare field. Could I just round out the empathy uh, conversation, uh, which I've enjoyed listening to? Um, 
a bot or a machine will not have empathy. It can simulate empathy. Um, but the other thing that I don't want to lose sight of for us is that um, a machine also won't have judgment. And we know in our practice of motivational interviewing that um, humans are super judgy. And it's really hard for us to keep that in check when we're working with another person. Um, and it's, it's very, um, of course, antithetical to motivational interviewing. But we spend, I know those of us who are out training, and I train a lot of folks in healthcare, this is the biggest challenge is helping the person who has their own experiences and beliefs not impose those um, on someone they're trying to coach in, in the form of judgment and um, the machine will outperform there. Okay. So, so I'll, Alex, you were talking, I was, I was, had my mind going, I think, so could we, could, could you guys, could y'all do this? Could y'all create a AI version of Steve Rolnick as an MI trainer? If you gave us enough of his tapes of him actually doing motivational interviewing, I think it would be a lot easier uh, for, yeah. for sure, because that I, I would say unequivocally, yes, both that and based on the degree to which uh, he's responsible for writing his own texts that would give uh, AI the insight into how he both conceptualizes and articulates you know, his experiences, I think we wouldn't have an issue. Um, that doesn't mean it has the intuition that Steve has as much as we can ensure that it thinks in a similar fashion uh, or communicates in a similar fashion that we could anticipate Steve responding or engaging someone. Um, but it certainly wouldn't, wouldn't come anywhere close to the intuition, I imagine, that he or any other member of Mint would bring to a, an MI-based conversation. Well, the, the state of the technology is that right now, no, you would be able to tell the difference between Stephen Rolnick and an MI bot. Um, it would get close, like an individual talk turn, you might not be able to tell the difference, but over a 30 minute session, you would know the difference and most people would know the difference. Um, there'd be weird inconsistencies. And in have you ever heard the expression of like, when someone sees some bad writing, like that looks like it was written by ChatGPT, right? That's the, those are the kinds of things that end up coming out. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're not very close to a point where you can't, right? I don't know, could it be two years? Could it be five years? It could be something like that, right? And then you're left with the question of like, is that an adequate substitute? And, and I think I'm, I'm kind of in the, with Alex in terms of his intuition where there's something special about another human really understanding you. And I think we've really put um, our energy and our time into the idea of like, you know, solving the access problem isn't going to be from a bot right now. But what if we can just train more humans? You know, what if you don't need to have a PhD or a master's in psychology to be an empathic listener that can help somebody? What if you can train and scaffold and monitor a human? Because there is something special about a human being really empathic and sitting across from you. But we don't have the resources to train enough humans right now. And so how can we scale the training? How can we scale the monitoring? And so I think that's... Uh, that's that's where we are right now, and I think that that's um, 
where the near term field is probably going to go. I'm kind of curious about this. I feel like we're in a bit of a species war between humans and AI. And I think that often when we talk about, you know, this kind of processing that's taking place is how do we harmoniously live together? And a lot of the anxiety that's coming up is this feeling that we're going to be taking over um, as humans, certainly in our jobs and, and in, you know, in, in, in our relationships. And that's already been present in other areas and other fields. So, so is what's happening in the industry around this movement towards creating a harmonious existence between the two? Like how, how is that being led by industry um, you know, pioneers? Well, I, I've got an eye on the chat as well. And I think, uh, is it Sue who's asking about kind of, is it either or both and? Um, and, you know, certainly, again, I'm just going to speak from our own experience. Um, you know, the, the thing that we tried to tackle initially is the ability to train AI to ingest a, a session, uh, however that session is done, and then output uh, reliable, valid MI fidelity feedback. And, and basically, you know, that is a really onerous task um, that if we can do that reliably at scale, then we're generating all sorts of good performance-based feedback um, that we can use in a, in a variety of ways. And so, um, you know, Sue, to uh, part of your question, you know, with, uh, you know, within the listen software, what that means is that a supervisor or a coach is getting this rich set of data on trainees or supervisees. Um, and then they can use that to do much more targeted um, coaching or supervision. Um, and so, uh, you know, and whether that is with, you know, sometimes we see that, you know, with a particular client, it's, you know, difficult for a provider to be empathic. So you can kind of highlight, oh, what is it about, you know, this individual client where it's challenging for you to have that empathic um, connection or, um, highlighting strengths um, out of this data, but it, it really is that you know we we think very proactively about how is it that the AI is scaffolding human processes. We are, in the case of the fidelity coding, we do more or less want the AI to replace humans, and I, I don't think there'll be too many arguments there. Um, but in terms of then, how does that information get used? We we try to design the rest of the software so that it is flexible and it's supporting um, human-based workflows, whether those are um, training uh, training workflows or supervision or quality assurance, uh, where humans are, are leading those tasks, but they're scaffolded by the AI software. So I think we would definitely see it as a both and, like how can we um, move towards a peaceable kingdom of, of AI and humans living happily together? Thank you, David. That's really helpful. Joel, what do you think about it? Well, I'm I'm thinking a couple of things. One is, so I'm I'm sort I'm 60 years old, and I've been doing MI training for for 20 years, and you know I'm I'm on the on the departing end of the professional spectrum, and so I'm not sitting here being like a 27 year old new motivational interviewing trainer 
wondering, am I about to get displaced by artificial intelligence? Or I have a coding lab and I hear David say, we just coded 10, you know, whatever, 10 to 20,000, you know, MI sessions in two days. Do I need to shut my doors or do I need to invest in learning AI? Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, to bring this kind of down to our little world of motivational interviewing, what, what are we looking at? A hybrid model? Uh, you know, like Sue said, is it either or? or is it? I guess it's a both and. But if, you know, Listen or Alex's software or what Catherine is working on is as accurate as human coding, and coding is about getting objective feedback, does that take, are we looking at like an artificial intelligence revolution, like the industrial revolution? When it comes to training, I think, you know, we are talking about, are we at a place where a, a bot is is going to do therapy with you? And I, I think the answer right now is no. And maybe it's not as far away as we think it is, right? But one of the, the uh, really cool things we've been working on is uh, Terry Moyers, who's, uh, who I think is, is on the call here somewhere, um, she's worked with us to develop an AI-assisted training that's asynchronous, that's online, uh, where Terry is sort of delivering all of the training content and people interact with vignettes, but they get immediate AI-generated feedback on everything that they say. So instead of the typical web-based training where you're just sort of going through and you're listening to things, maybe you're doing some multiple choice stuff, you know, you're getting real feedback. Um, and I, I thinking that, you know, right now it's already with the folks that are using it, it's really drastically scaling up, um, you know, how many people we can train and how quickly we can train. Terry, Terry, why don't you jump in and talk more about it? I'm so glad you're here. It's, it's uh, so wonderful. Uh, to, to see you do the online training that you did. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful and beautiful and rich, uh, but accessible enough that my 12 uh, year old daughter has done it and, and just loves it. So Terry, why don't, why don't, I don't know, why don't you jump in and say- you know, She's gonna rejoin as a panelist in a minute. There, there I just did. Hey, uh, back at you, Mike. Hey. Thanks, for, thanks for having us here. I'm here with Ivan Balan, uh, my friend who's visiting me in Pagosa. So we're here yep. on vacation. Because it's such an interesting topic. So I just got to say a couple of things. One is the fat recognition is a really different task than like, like taking a multiple choice test is really different than writing an essay. And that's kind of the difference between, um, yes, you can recognize your computer programs can recognize good MI and they can even generate a little bit of it. But, you know, computers don't have a limbic system and a lot of our communications as human beings occurs at a really limbic level and it's informed by biologically based structures in our brain that, you know, I don't know that we're necessarily ever going to be able to get there with, um, you know, AI bots that, that they can mimic it, but I don't know if they can actually generate it. And the real, um, uh, the real gold standard for that will be client outcomes. Can we get client outcomes as good with bots as we could with real therapists? And I'm going to bet, I'm willing to bet any one person a thousand dollars that that will never happen. I'm 64 and, you know, I'm going to retire in two years, but still I got a thousand bucks on the line for anybody that wants to bet me about that between in the next two years. <laughs> And second of all, you know, what, what our AI can now accomplish and in the reasonable future, I mean, Dave Atkins is a pretty smart guy. So he might get past me on this is 
So what? So you can get, let's say you can get 75% of what the mighty can get with, you know, uh, reliable coders. Like, I love that. I personally love that because it opens up the opportunity for people to get lots of feedback and improve. But I also got to say, you know, the mighty is a pretty low bar for capturing what goes on in motivational interviewing. And are the, I also similarly absolutely adore, I mean, with capital letters, the system that um, Mike is describing about training therapists because they get real-time feedback. So people who are struggling, man, they get real-time feedback and what they can do to do better. And that's fabulous, but it just doesn't get you past a certain point where expertise and subtlety and um, intuition or whatever you want to call it, that your limbic system is allowing you to contribute to your interaction with another human being. We're not close to getting there yet. I don't think I stand to be corrected. I stand to be corrected. So that's what I got to say. Thanks, Joel. No, no, no problem, Terry. Nice to see you, Ivan. Um, hey, the, have y'all created a bot of Terry that you can show us? <laughs> <laughs> um, now, that does sound really exciting, what you're doing, that sort of integrated, I don't know what even to call it, that AI learning process. And, you know, to me, Cutting one of the things is what you yeah, should well, well, one of the things that's come out of the out of out of the pandemic is that we have you know technology that can reach all the way around the world into places that couldn't have access to to motivational interviewing training and all you need is an internet connection and i I think that's that's a game changer um in terms of not having to have physical people in the room doing the training particularly if the outcomes are close to being or as good or better. Some people learn MI from a book. Sure. Some YouTube videos. Yeah. Well, Catherine, what are you thinking right now? Where's your head with all this conversation? Well, a couple of places. Um, I just want to comment briefly on the uh, something that came up a while ago in the chat about should the AI agent uh, reveal that they are an AI agent my own um, point of view is that absolutely transparency is a requirement in my mind. Um, so, you know, different organizations are going to handle that differently. But um, the other thing that's going on as I listen to this uh, conversation about um, where does a human stop and the machine begin and will we always need humans. And, and as I think about that in the context of am I, I guess one of the things that I'm, wrestling with is that um, I believe that, you know, part of the reason, and gosh, I, I, I hesitate to have an opinion in front of uh, Terry Moyers, but part of the reason that um, MI works isn't because of what the, um, the coach does. It's because of what happens within the person's own two ears and how they are. This is the whole idea of intrinsic motivation, how they are talking themselves into doing something or out of doing something it's that self-conversation that I guess I feel a little bit more, I love humans, I want to be with them, I don't want to live in a headset for the rest of my career or my life, but I guess I'm not so clear that if the prompts if were generated by an agent and that agent was, um, that machine was transparent about that, but if it facilitated a process of internal reflection and growth, 
I guess I'm not ready to throw out that that in and of itself couldn't be really powerful. Collins, why don't you join in? You seem to have a big thumbs up there. I was just well, I was just thinking that from a from a practitioner development standpoint that one of the greatest tools at someone's fingertips is an open platform to do some self-exploration as it relates to to their own quality. And so, you know, it does require, you know, some nuanced education around, you know, understanding, you know, the development of MI, we'll call it MI proficiency, but just MI period or an MI skill set. You can do, a, you can do a lot of, of work and I'll give you a perfect example. I, I was using, you know, ChatGPT, which is an open AI platform to do a similar process. And it was, it was actually, it was in February. I remember the date. It was February 13th. I was exploring some different things that contribute to why someone might be stuck or have a hard time making a change. And one of the things that I stumbled upon as I was going down this rabbit hole, and again, I'm in America, was, uh, the the value the cultural value in america of personal responsibility that's grounded in the american dream is responsible for the sense of personal responsibility that oftentimes creates this external shame and blame culture when someone attempts to make a change in struggles and so it really opened my eyes up to thinking a little bit differently about the external factors that really need to be taken accounted accounted for and oftentimes, not always, but an MI-based conversation as it relates to really helping someone pay attention to the internal you know, running monologue that in their mind that, that might be really serving to, to impede their ability to see their own confidence or to really explore their self-efficacy. And so for, for me, it was something small like that that came out of spending a few hours really trying to better understand what is it about the individuals I'm serving that are still struggling uh, to navigate change? And, and so there's an endless opportunity, especially as it relates, and uh, Catherine, that's why I gave such a big thumbs up, as it relates to self-exploration and personal discovery. And, and that has endless value on a personal and professional level when you use it uh, with the right intentions and with good integrity. Oh. You okay to sign off? No. As were you going to say something, Jerry? No, we're we got to run. So we we okay, got just... fish to fry here. So we're on our way for vacation, and we wanted to just say goodbye and thanks for hosting such a great um, forum, Joel. Appreciate it. Bye, Mike. Bye, no Dave. Problem. Good to see you, friend. Um, all right, well, let's go to a couple questions. So on. June. Oh, there you are from Korea. Uh, June might be coming on to join us. Um, so Fiona asked that, you know, given the differences in styles and the way people do motivational interviewing, you know, if you listen to Bill versus Steve versus Terry versus Kendall, it's going to, it'll be MI, but it might be different. Is, is, is AI nuanced enough to pick up the allow for the differences and pick up for what is motivational interviewing and working with things like metaphor and analogy. I believe that's what she was asking. You know, I think from where we sit 
there's uh, the question of, you know, is that possible? Like, what, what, what can it do now? Is that possible? But I think there's also like, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, there's a bit of a disconnect with, you know, where we're looking at, you know, listen, customers and uh, folks largely in um, publicly funded behavioral health care here in the U.S. And sort of these like nuanced distinctions are couple orders of magnitude beyond like what is the really the specific need you know and it's that they are you know a lot of care is being done by folks who are not licensed um, so we're increasingly working with um, agencies uh, suicide hotlines crisis centers and there are licensed clinicians that um, staff those but not all of them um, and you know some of the ways that folks are trying to expand access to behavioral health care in the U.S are again through non-licensed clinicians so those could be coaches health coaches um, those could be peer supporters and so uh so you know I'm, I'm having a little bit of that tension of you know i i think what we're seeing is like wow we just need some really good basic skills like how do we bring folks up to get, like learn ors you know be that good really empathic listener have an ear out for change talk and things like that um and so so that that's kind of half my brain as I'm I'm thinking about this. You know, the other half is could AI ever pick up these nuances and these distinctions? And I think the answer is pretty clearly yes. It is you know largely about uh, how much training data is there, and is it specific to the type of nuances that you want the AI to to learn? So you know, if we gave it access to every um, video recorded training that uh, Bill and Steve have done, it probably would begin to be able to pick up and you had the right model, you know, it'd start to pick up those nuances between those two different uh, 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 founders of MI. So there's just a few thoughts off the top of my head on that one. Can I um, ask on that as well then? So one of the things that is we're talking about that I, and I'm really naive about AI, by the way, so I, I might sound really daft when I ask this, but a lot of it is really about language. So one of the things as clinicians that we look for is the wider, how's the body moving? What's the tone of voice? What are the eyes doing? And one of the big things that occurs in healthcare that we see is disguised compliance, even more so in social work um, when we do that. So is it AI... Is that possible as well? I mean, what, what's the infrastructure? Are you looking at things that I'm just not aware of? Terry says, we, you know, that AI doesn't have a limbic system, but there must be things that you're looking at, like tone of voices, you know, I don't know, heart rates, things. Is, is that part of what these programs are or is it still very much based on language? There's a lot of work going on in other areas of artificial intelligence to do that. So I think we've been sort of talking about chat um, and generative, but uh, folks are using, um, um, for example, um, uh, vi visualizing to, to see based on someone's um, face, facial recognition software, um, to see whether or not they're depressed. So that exists being studied at Carnegie Mellon and other places. Um, there's a company called Health Rhythms that looks at behaviors that are part of, you know, tracking in your phone to see what your level of behavioral activation is. So it's not just based on language. Um, and I, I would say everybody, 
there are people with hands on different parts of the elephant. What makes it all come together into something that uses the language, large language models, but also pulls in facial recognition, behavioral so uh, activation software, skin uh, temperature, all of that. Whoever pulls that all together um, will be its own new thing. And right now, um, different companies and organizations are working on different pieces of it. But it's super powerful. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And I know that June's just said when it comes to mind reading, to cognitive empathy and accuracy, um, audio data is more important than visual data um, and more, much more easier to process. And I guess that fits with a lot of the stuff when we talk about juries and how actually human beings are very bad at reading other human beings because of our own prejudice, our own experience. So that, that is, that's really, really important for us to remember. Um, and David's agreeing with June. Yeah, wow. there's, there's a lot of work into a lot of these, what, what I think are just really interesting areas, right? Automatically rating symptoms of clients without them having, you know, to actually fill out a form. And we, we've done some publication in the area and, you know, using multimodal uh, ways of perceiving uh, what's going on with an individual. But I, I think what, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of these companies that are doing what I just think is genuinely interesting work, but they're not really, focused on a problem that's really solving something in the real world. And I think, you know, when you're out there in the real world, the problems are is that, you know, you you have folks that aren't trained very well, that aren't delivering high quality therapy, quality that's uh, therapy that's effective, uh, that there's not a good way to scale training. Um, and there's been multiple companies that have actually risen and failed uh, that have been trying to solve these problems that I just don't think are real world problems for providers. And that I think that there's a lot of these Silicon Valley tech companies that just aren't in the world of mental health and aren't talking to people in mental health that aren't trying to really solve these real world problems. Even though I just think it's phenomenally interesting uh, being able to automatically, we can do that it reasonably well, right? Automatically rate what the symptoms are of somebody without having to ask them. I think that's cool. I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. If someone would buy that product, I'd start a company that that did it. But I, I don't think anyone anyone is. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I think Dave and I have both learned the hard way um, is that in academia, you're most of the day you spend thinking about what's interesting, right? And And after starting a company, I think it's been a really wonderful life experience to spend my day thinking about how do I solve problems for people in the real world. And so I think um, there's a really fun abstract discussion around AI and what it can do. But I think there's a more important conversation around like, how do we really move the needle on the quality of mental health in terms of access, uh, in terms of quality, um, you know, and I think that that's, um, that's the better question for us to be really spending our day on. Really good point. Fiona's. Oh, Joel, you're on mute. Uh, June is in South Korea, and um, it's very early in the morning there. And June, if you're on, please turn your camera on and join the conversation. Um, I'd love to hear the work that you're doing with um, AI in in motivational interviewing. And when we see you come on, we'll just we'll just let you join right in. Um, there we go. Hello, Jen. Hello. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. 
Thank you. I don't have a camera now, so um, I can only speak okay. through the audio. Yeah. That's okay. So tell us what your thoughts are on this discussion and on AI and what you're doing with it. Okay. Um, I think there is a very interesting... Uh, first of all, my first language is not English. So sorry for my English, if you can uh, understand cl clearly. Yeah. First of all, I think here is a very interesting uh, point because uh, currently AI is useless to novices and experts at the same time. Because um, for novices, the AI, current, uh, AI represented by ChatGPT gives you misinformations, so-called hallucinations, and the uh, real information mixed together. And novices doesn't have expert expertise to distinguish between two. So it can be quite dangerous for them. At the same time, for experts, the information AI provides, they can distinguish real and fake. But at the same time, the information is almost everything they know already. They are basic, usually basic if it is not fine-tuned yet. So it is uh, useless for novices and experts at the same time. Maybe it could be useful for people at the intermediate uh, level. But there's one another uh, interesting variable to uh, focus on. That is uh, the skill of making prompts. What I have learned through uh, experimenting with uh, ChatGPT is the value and the quality of uh, answer from ChatGPT varies a lot depending on how you ask. It's uh, surprisingly uh, influencing a lot. So um, you can uh, get more skilled in making prompts, uh, proper or better prompts than um, the value you get out of the AI will be much higher, much more higher. So it's kind of a co-evolution, I think, between human and AI. You learn uh, more about how to use AI better. Yeah. So I sometimes use uh, a prompt for enhancing prompt. That is, I give a prompt to ChatGPT and make it to enhance the prompt the way they like it more. Then they give me a better prompt, and then I ask that prompt again. Then the answer becomes much more valuable. So I think we can train ourselves to uh, utilize AI much better and get more value out of it. Yeah. So that's my uh, interest currently. And I've been expanding with MI a uh, little bit, and I think uh, current ChatGPT could be a great and valuable tool for uh, most of the MI trainers, even at expert level, I believe so. And John, yeah, you have a question. For... Oh, go ahead, David. David, yeah, please. Oh, I was just going to say, June, thank you for sharing that. I think uh, I'm wondering if either Alex or Mike maybe can talk a little bit about prompting with ChatGPT. So June was highlighting 
about the quality of responses from these models based on the prompt. Um, and so that it, if you haven't played with chat GPT, that might, might not be you know clear what that is. And I, I haven't done it as much. So I was wondering maybe one of you guys want to talk about the nature of that. June, I, I want to, yeah, I a hundred percent agree with um, your statement. And I think, I think you jumped on later. So I think you were, you're just reinforcing what I said earlier, where, you know, chat GPT um, is really the raw material that experts work with. And no one should be using chat GPT for any healthcare application on its own, right? Um, we should be using chat GPT. Um, if, if you're using it, you should be not fine tuning it in terms of fine tuning prompts, but you should be training it on expert data that has specific properties and then measuring it on new data to see how it performs, right? Um, and the when I was talking about danger, the danger in AI right now is people just playing with ChatGPT um, and thinking that ChatGPT is qualified to do something in healthcare um, on its on its own. And so I, I think I I think I agree with the the point you're making. And it's amazing what like ChatGPT can do off the shelf in terms of prompting. Prompting is where you, they basically took a large language model and trained it to respond with to prompts. Right? You can ask it to do something. Ask it a question. Ask it to do you know an MI role play. And it, it's pretty good when you first look at it. But it, again, it doesn't have those properties of an FDA approved drug. Right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and that's why I think that um, you know. I think the danger here is that people are doing these things where you do one or two prompts and it looks like, oh, maybe this could do something useful. But but I think that that's the thing that we should be carefully regulating, carefully monitoring against. And us as the motivational interviewing community, when someone comes to you with a model that says, I trained ChatGPT to do X or Y, you should be asking them for data, right? That you should be asking mm -hmm. what's the data that shows that this is safe, this is effective, that this is doing something accurately. How does it, you know, perform compared to humans? Right? To, to yeah. add on to what can, can, can I add something here, please? Go, go for it. Sure, go ahead, Jen. Th thank you, Alex. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree, but at the same time, I think uh, there is another axis, another dimension we have to talk about. That is um, educating people to how to talk to AI properly, or how to interpret their answer properly. Then I think the danger uh, level would go much lower. So, for example, um, I give my students to get correct answer from ChatGPT, calculating, uh, calculating four digit by four digit multiplication. If you try, it will be really, really difficult to get correct answer from ChatGPT four digit and four digit multiplication because uh, it doesn't have enough data of four digit, four digit multiplication. But if you prompt or ask in a specific way, you get correct answer almost always. So I think um, we can learn, we can teach um, how to talk to AI properly. If, if its education is uh, widely spread, then I think the danger level would go much lower. Alex, you, you, you were going to add on as well. 
Um, yes, in relation to uh, the prompting, correct? And uh, Michael had shared. I, I kind of I forgot, so I, I apologize. I, I think, um, again, a part of it is uh, the education piece. And so June is right, like a lot needs to be invested in that. But again, it's uh, really understanding why you're using it. And so again, like there there are some challenges and someone had put it, it's coming back to me in the comment and uh, in the chat box earlier uh, that someone was noticing on LinkedIn, a lot of, you know, blog posts or recent posts related to, something related to motivational interviewing and recognizing that, you know, the blog post was pulling in information from motivational interviewing, the second edition, which was published in, uh, I think it was early 2000s. And, and so obviously it's not updated. And so it's people using it to their advantage without, you know, really being able to, or not reusing it with a lot of integrity uh, or, you know, with, with really any ethics in mind when you're producing content that you're not necessarily an expert in and using it to brand yourself. Some might say that is a lack of ethics. Um, and, and so it is incredibly important to use it with the best of intentions. And that's, that is challenging. Also really interesting to me for all of us to pay attention to like, what is your first instinct it says a lot about how you feel about it. And it's just a great place for everyone to really begin you know, their own relationship with artificial intelligence. When I shared it, I've shared it with a number of different people and some of the people I've shared it with are like, I think people will take advantage of it. And I'm like, okay, probably. And what does that say about you that your first instinct is to believe that people are going to take advantage of it in a negative way? And, and, and so for me, it's really just about being open-minded and really paying, beginning to pay attention to ourselves as the rest of the world and the community comes to really understand. I've talked with other members of the my community who are like, I use ChatGPT to help me figure out what type of recipe I can make with the leftover ingredients I have in my refrigerator and cabinet. I can do that. And so it's like, to, to what end do you want to use it? As uh, Michael was sharing, we probably shouldn't be using it in that context because, you know, although it's very, very low hanging fruit and probably doesn't influence anything, it's an open format that does influence, you know, the whole scheme and world that is using it. And so just being really mindful and like I was saying, like, I just really love everyone to start paying attention to, to really how they feel about it themselves and, and uh, really understanding where your own feelings and perceptions are coming from. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm aware of the time. And again, this, as these conversations go, they, they travel around and they go pretty fast. Um, and what, where I'd like to, where I'd like to, um, kind of finish up would be to kind of bring it back down into the world of motivational interviewing and how, you know, and, you know, how do you see AI interfacing with MI moving forward? And, you know, I was thinking the other day that 30 years ago, I couldn't imagine having a smartphone, right? That wasn't even something that would have been, you know, that would have been like Star Trek land, you know? And to think, you know, 15 years from now, what, what might be happening that we have no idea about in regards to the world of MI research, training, and providing services? So whoever can, whoever wants to start, feel free. Well, certainly, you know, one 
one thought that comes to mind is that, uh, you know, Terry and, and others who have developed MI Fidelity coding systems, you know, they have developed those for a variety of reasons, you know, partly to support training, partly for research purposes to show that this is MI and it's not something else. Um, but, you know, one of the purposes, uh, particularly with the more um, detail-oriented coding systems like the MISC, is to understand something about the process of therapy. Um, and, uh, you know, as we gain the ability to analyze MI sessions on a, you know, here, heretofore unimaginable scale, um, I think there's very good reason to think that we will be able to do much more sophisticated analyses of why does MI work? Um, what is it? What are maybe some global um, lessons that we can draw? And, uh, and then the idea, I think, of uh, kind of fine-tuning MI at a fairly specific level um, in terms of uh, feedback or ideas for how MI might be tuned um, to an individual uh, client, I think is also probably um, in the in the future. So kind of understanding how does MI work in general, but also the AI's ability to maybe listen to the first session or two and then start to provide feedback that is actually specific to Mike giving therapy, therapy to Dave, um, that that level of really precision tuned um, MI feedback and, and suggestions at an individual patient level uh, is probably out there. So a couple okay. thoughts. Then that would be a huge leap forward in helping people learn and get better at what they're doing. I'll just ask. Catherine, what are your thoughts? Oh, I, I, um, I really like what Listen's doing. It's been uh, new for me today to learn about this company and your application. I think that's super promising. I guess I would say at a more aspirational level, which doesn't quite um, you know, meet uh, Mike's challenge of solve problems concretely. And I get that because I've worked in business for a while myself. Um, but more aspirational would be you know, how through the combination of MI and AI can we help there be better conversations between humans not necessarily even with a therapeutic or a behavior change goal, but knowing that we have a practice that if we can um, put it out in the wild in, in different settings to help people better connect with one another, better understand one another, of course, empathize with one another. You know, I think that's, um, that could be a movement for good. Um, and I know there's going to be disinformation campaigns. So I'm very interested in being, on the other side of the life equation and um, using both technology and MI for good. Um, so where and how we do that, um, I think the opportunities or the use cases are really limitless. I hope everybody that's been on this call will think about how can I use um, AI to scale MI for the different situations that I work in. Alex. I'll, I'll say a couple of things as a, um, when I, when I first wanted to join the mentor organization, I think I was 25 or 26, and I was working on getting my licensure, and I just got my master's degree a couple of years prior to, and I had zero money, and I just had a baby, and I couldn't find anyone who was willing to support my practitioner development and in motivational interviewing. And so when I think about having 
access to a tool like this. And at the time, I'm so glad that I didn't have a tool like this because it led me, and the only reason I'm saying is because Kate Speck's here, it led me to Kate Speck, uh, who I so thankfully listened to tell me that I wasn't very good in my first audio tape. I don't know if that's feedback that an AI bot would have given me because it probably wouldn't have been perceived very well, although it was exactly what I needed to hear. And so sometimes the thing we need to hear isn't the thing that an AI bot is willing to tell us. However, I really would have benefited from access to resources and support that otherwise I didn't have access to. And, and so for me, it's really about keeping an open mind and paying attention to ourselves as we navigate, I think, as Joel had mentioned earlier, very much this new frontier or, or new industrial revolution, if you will, uh, that really will bring about a number of changes and I'm very much happy to have uh, been a part of this and participate with this because I like listening and learning from everyone um, and, and believe a lot more of that will continue to happen as, as things evolve. So thank you for having me here and allowing me to share. You're welcome. We just, we, we appreciate your time. No, I totally agree. <clears throat> My first introduction to motivational interviewing was the first edition of the book. And um <clears throat> At the time, I was living in Germany working alongside the Department of Defense, and I was trying to figure out how to do it on the chapter of how do you teach other people motivational interviewing. Boy, if I could have had a, you know, an interactive, you know, program to help me learn, it sure would have expedited my learning of MI. Um, Michael, what are your thinking about the future? You know, there's... Um... Bill McKibben, the environmentalist, in a, in a book, he was talking about the first time he uh, he got a hybrid car. And the hybrid car is the first car he had that ever had like that instantaneous like gas mileage on it, right? And he was talking about how he like started to obsess over like this metric, right? To the point where like he wouldn't fully stop at a stop sign because that just totally blew his gas mileage for for that mile, right? Um I I really, I always love that idea, right? That the mere presentation of little bits of feedback can like drastically modify behavior. We did this uh, this study a couple of years ago where we had people on MTurk and MTurk is just basically random people willing to do random study tasks or random work tasks. Um, and we randomized them into feedback versus no feedback using our AI algorithms where they were just chatting with a bot, right? that was simulating a client. Um, by the end of these sessions, which is just like 15 minute sessions where they received feedback, they were doing MI that looked like PhD counseling psych students. And so I really believe that just, just making feedback cheap, and easily available can really take people who we don't think of as your typical clinicians, right? Highly trained clinicians. I think we can take people and turn them into good listeners, right? Just by giving them that little bit of feedback. Um, there's uh, some of them we work with at the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Cynthia Weaver. She has this really beautiful vision where uh, she understands motivational interviewing, but she doesn't think that it's something for clinicians. She thinks it's something for everybody. It's for teachers, it's for parents, it's for spouses. Mm -hmm. And she really has this vision of how can we use technology to take MI outside of where we've traditionally thought it belonged because we have constrained resources. And so that's where I really hope that this technology takes us, where we can make, you know, 
everybody better listeners, where we can improve people's lives by, uh, you know, breaking the traditional model, the traditional clinical not model, not by making more bots, but by making people better listeners. And so uh, that's where I hope that technology goes, though. You know, I've been wrong before. So. I hope you're not wrong there, Michael. I hope, I hope, I hope the vision that you just put forward that was shared by your colleague can move forward. June, do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share with us? I know you had put something in the chat on the way, and I'll, I'll watch if you unmute, we'll, we'll finish up. Kendall, how about you? What, what are your reflections on this conversation? And then I'll get Anne's to share too. Oh, well, I just want to say thank you. What a rich conversation this has been. I've learned a lot from all of you, and you've given me a lot of food for thought, definitely. I still have tension, um, but that's a good thing. And I love Alex's point as well about it's our relationship with AI that's a good thing to reflect on. And as humans, we're often so binary. And what I love about this conversation is it's helped us stay in that space of paradox that it can we can coexist and there can also be perhaps some struggles. And I'm really, really excited to see how it goes from an MI training perspective. That really excites me. Um, I can feel my threat system activated when I start to think about it in a way where it's taking over some of the human connection. Um, but I'm also willing to challenge myself on that. And I'm, I, I feel in safe hands if the whole work, the AI world was in your hands. I just, we just need you to be um, more of you. So now you can go on to cloning and you can get involved in Silicon Valley and start taking over that world and we'll be a lot safer. But thank you. And thank you, Joel, for creating this this conversation as well. Oh. Jane, I've seen you've unmuted. Would you, is there some closing thoughts that you would like to share? Sorry, I, I talked about me. Would you like, are there some closing, uh, is there yeah, some yeah, things yeah. that you would like to share? Sure. Um, I, I'd like to um, suggest some kind of exploration. If you haven't experienced ChatGPT yet, that I want to suggest is um, what I suggest also to my students, that is um, write down your own personal issue to ChatGPT and ask it to generate a worked example of a professional MI practitioner helping this person who has the same issue. Then it will generate the worked example. And if you see that, if you read that, um, you can feel the value of its um, educational value. Yeah. So I want you to all explore this kind of thing. Yeah. All right. I'll, I will take you up on that, June. I've been meaning to, to play around with it. All right, Ange, what are your thoughts? You've been sitting back and taking <laughs> it all in. Well, I'm a newbie, really, to all of this, but... Um kind of come with an open mind and if anything I feel more reassured than um scared really you know to me it reaffirms like just like you said Joel that we didn't have smartphones <laughs> 10 years ago um not to underestimate what what this is but just remember it's a tool um and tools uh, it's a powerful tool that we don't know exactly 
what it potentially is capable of, but um, tools are, and then the right hands, they can do amazing things and the wrong hands, they, they can do not so amazing things. So I like to think of it, this conversation, it's, it's driven home to me that I don't think humans are going to be replaced, but hopefully they could be enhanced in how we, in how we, we perform. So yeah, I'm interested to learn more. So thank you so oh, much, everyone. It's been fantastic. Yes. No, everybody who's joined us, we greatly appreciate your time. Um, you know, I feel more informed now um, and looking forward to what the future brings. So I know that Mike and David both put their emails in the chat and they're, you know, lovely guys. It's been great to meet you. Alex, good to see you. Catherine, you as well. June. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for getting up at two o'clock in the morning to to come on. Um, and Anne's, it's always a pleasure to work alongside you. Uh, pity Steve wasn't here to throw in his little uh, comments and ideas and share a bottle of wine with us. So anyway, everybody go well. And um, we'll have this up on YouTube and the podcast out before too long, probably the next 48 hours. All right. Take care, everybody. Awesome. So Take care. Bye. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Wow. Wow.